Hey, y'all. Welcome. Welcome to REF. My name is Simon Stokes. I'm the campus minister here. And this is your first time here with us. I just want to say thanks for being here and thanks for being a part of what we're doing tonight. Um, We're a community of people that's centered on Jesus and on seeing who Jesus is, figuring out who he is. This is a community that we're not everyone is a Christian. That's okay. Um, But primarily what we're doing here is trying to figure out who he is and what he wants for our lives and what has he said and what has he done and what does his life and death on people's behalf mean? Um, How does that work its way out here in Carolina and with our hopes and our dreams and our aspirations for our careers and family? What does that mean for us here while we're in college? So that's what REF is really about. And it's my job to help you all try to figure that out, but mainly to pray with you all and help you to wrestle with God and who he is and what he's called you to do in life and in the world. And it's a real honor and privilege to be here with you all tonight to do that. Um, So, diving in here. Uh, I don't know how well you all... uh, Some of you all have done this, some of you haven't, but who is... If you've ever run a marathon, or you know anyone who's ever run a marathon, um, it's not me. Uh, One of my goals in life is to never run a marathon, and (laughs) some... You know, it's one of the few goals I can check off and say, consistently killing it. Uh, (laughs) Not running a marathon. Uh, But... Beyond marathons, there are these things called ultra-marathons, which I don't know if you've heard that, but it's like for people who thought marathons, which is 26.2 miles, was too weak, they just said it'd be even more hardcore. And the most hardcore of the ultra-marathons is one called the Badwater. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's, it's incredible. It is the most ludicrously difficult thing I've ever heard of. It's almost fantastical. But what it is, is it's 135 miles long. No stops. It starts at uh, the Badwater Basin in Death Valley, the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, According to my notes, negative 282 feet below sea level. That's super, super low. It's insanely hot. I checked the weather for it today. The high was 97 in April. It was like 40 degrees on campus. <laughs> uh, it's 135 miles. It winds its way up eight th- over 8,000 feet to the top of a mountain. That's where it ends. It's so insane. Um, and people who do ultra marathons who are just totally hardcore and more insane than uh, most of the people that I know in my life. M- many of those people cannot do the bad water. It is so insanely difficult. And, you know, kind of judging from it, you can tell it's not a speed race. It's a 135-mile-long endurance race. And I tell that story, or I tell that because tonight we spent this, or we spent this semester studying the book of Hebrews and asking ourselves, okay, what is the story that God has told in history? Like, what's the story he's told through his word? And if it's true, how do I live in that? Like, if God is calling us to put on this story that he's telling, which culminates in the life and death of Jesus for people who are sinners, and to live a life of faith, then what does that feel like? What does it actually look like to live? And the Bible pretty consistently says it is like an ultramarathon. It is like a long-time endurance race. And so I have two points for us tonight. I have two points. What sort of race is this, and what is the object of this race? What sort of race is this, and what is the object of this race? So let me read the scripture for us tonight, and I'll pray, and we'll get started here. This is Hebrews. Uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every week weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, Lord, even though the grass withers and the flowers fade, that it stands forever. Um, Lord, that we can have confidence in it, that we can trust it, and we can trust that because we know it, we know you. So, Lord, would you please work in our lives tonight through your word and through the story that's inviting us into of Jesus Christ, who's crucified for sinners, who's despised the shame of the cross and endured it for the joy that was set before him, for the joy of inviting us into a relationship with you. Would you do that for us tonight? Amen. Cool. So, first of all, what sort of race is this? What sort of race is this? It's an endurance race, right? Like, the word endure comes up twice in this passage. And why, like, why do we need to talk about this as a race? Why is this a fitting metaphor? It's not just used here, but elsewhere. And I think it's this. It's that we as Americans live in this kind of 21st century cultural moment where all the predictions about religion said that, you know, the more technologically advanced we get, the more... Uh, that people go to school, the more that people study science, the less and less and less important religion will become in everyday life. And you know, that, by every statistician's estimates, has just kind of blown up on the tarmac. It, like, it is just not true. But what you hear typically from people is, I'm not a religious person, I'm a spiritual person. They're, just still, they're still following something, it's just not an organized religion. And the way that this typically plays out is that in the U.S. that we tend to be very attracted to spiritualities that present us with kind of a door. Like, here's a door. And if you listen to me and you just walk through it, then all your struggles and just hard things in life will stop. And you'll be kind of bumped up to this other tier of humanity and your experience will change and everything will go much smoother for you. Or, you know, here's a key. And I'll give you this key if you come to my seminar, or you read my book, or you come to my ministry. And I'll give you this key, and you can use it to open up the secrets of the world. And your problems will go away. Frustrations that were there will be explained or will disappear. But regardless, we tend to be attracted to spiritualities that say, here's this thing, and if you kind of get it, you can take the next step. And it's not for most of the riffraff out there. But just between you and me, welcome to this secret kind of knowledge that I'm letting you in on. Contrast that, though, with the super old biblical metaphor that life is actually not a key or a door, but it's actually a really difficult road. Or it's a perilous journey, or it's a challenging path, and it takes your whole life to walk it. I mean, the metaphor that's often used is from Exodus, right? That even that's history... It's kind of picked up on in the Bible and says, you know, spirit, your spiritual life is really like you are set free from bondage or slavery to sin. Your whole of your life is this journey through the desert where you're depending on God and relying less on yourself. And one day you come to the promised land. Like That's what the journey of faith looks like. Consider this for those of you who think of yourselves as Christians, that you experience hardship. And you bump up into things where you think, you know, I can do this maybe for a little bit longer if it stops in maybe a couple of months. But I don't know how I'm going to deal with a life that's just fraught with things like divorce and cancer and people that I love, like, betraying me at times. Like, I'm 21, 22 now, and I'm trying to take care of myself, so maybe I'll live to like 80, 85. But I don't know if I can do this for another 60 years. Like, honestly, this struggle, this challenge, this setback, it exhausts me. 
And I want to say to you all that this text give us, gives us two things. That one is refreshingly honest about hardship. That this is a life where it's an ultra marathon. Where everyone is moving towards something and there's no key or door to step out of that. But secondly, it gives us good news. It isn't just saying, now get out there and run and toughen up. But it offers us something to move towards which should give us real hope for completing the race that's set before us. So what does this mean for us? What reality does this mean for us? One... If you're going to take this seriously and engage in kind of the ultra marathon of faith, then you've got to lose the impediments, lose the obstacles. Look at what verse 1 says here. Let us lay aside every weight and all the sin that clings to us. Maybe you've heard this before, but in the ancient Greek world, uh, athletic contestants didn't compete uh, with clothes, but they were naked as they competed or ran. Um, Thankfully, you don't do that anymore. Appreciate it, Marcus. Uh, We no longer do that. Uh, so when you watch the Olympics now, like nearly every single sport is in this kind of skin-tight clothing. Swimming, it's a really tight kind of whole body fitted thing. Skiing, really tight. Gymnastics, really tight. Even speed skating is like from here to your ankles. It's a super tight, really smooth suit. Even to the point where you're wearing like goggles and like one of those weird teardrop-shaped helmets. Like I didn't know that my head put up that much wind resistance. But if you ask the people who do speed skating, does that really matter? They would say yes. That you need to lose all the friction, all the impediments. And the writer here is saying, if you're going to run this ultra marathon, then you've got to lose all the impediments, all the sin which kind of entangles us or clings to us. And y'all, I want you to think about this. What does this typically look like? Think about this. I would say that this is something that even happens just for ethical dilemmas. But let's say that for a Christian, sometimes you come to a real moral fork in the road. And it's like, I can do this, or I can do that. And you're sitting there, and you're thinking about wondering, like, what should I do to do this thing? And neither one of these are bad options. Like, what if there's, what if you thought about your future, or you thought about trying to make decisions like this? Which one of these will help me run the most? And which one of these will hinder my running? In any kind of way. Like, do I need to wear the weird teardrop-shaped helmet to get that much more speed and efficiency as I run this race? For instance, we're in exams right now, kind of exam mode, where everyone's amped up and writing papers and worried and nervous. And sometimes people take kind of large blocks of time off from church worship. Like, is is there scripture saying you can't take a couple of Sundays off? No, not really. Nothing in scripture says you can't take three or four Sundays off. But ask yourself... On a Saturday, as you're looking over your exam schedules for the next couple of weeks, and you're looking over what are the papers and the tests I need to get done tomorrow, will skipping church help me run or hinder me from running? Especially in a season of life where I'm feeling so much pressure to perform and succeed, will skipping church keep me focused on my run or will it not? Or some of us are already thinking about next fall and making a list of sort of enriching activities that we can be a part of, none of which are necessarily bad or sinful, but just like, what do I need to do next fall to kind of max it out? Like, could I do even more? Do I say yes to this or say no to it? Am I going to be out more nights? What if you asked yourself, does this help me run? Or is it something that as good as it is, do I need to lay it aside? Do I need to put it down? Secondly, I think running this race requires community. None of the uh, pronouns here are singular. They're all plural. 
It's saying that it requires people who are going through life with you that you can say to this other person who knows you well and knows your schedule and your time and your hopes and your dreams, help me think through what would help me to run here. What's tripping me up? What am I not seeing? What are my blind spots? What looks like an impediment to you? How do we help one another lose those impediments, right? That's what REF is about, is let's help one another run this race. Help one another know Jesus and know God through Him. Think about the image that's used here in verse 1. It's the image of a stadium or an arena. And there's so many people there, kind of, of deceased saints who are kind of hovering over it, that it, look, it says it's like a cloud, Think millions and millions and millions of God's people from all of history kind of there over the stadium where we're competing and it's a cloud of witnesses watching us in this endurance run. And as I was looking uh, kind of at the Badwater Ultramarathon, there was a guy that it talked about consistently who I can't remember what his name was, like Carnesi, Carnesi, I didn't really get it. All I can remember is that his racing name is Carno which is awesome. It sounds like he's a velociraptor. Um, if you ever want to give me a cool sports name, I'm just going to throw that one towards you. Uh, <laughs> as I looked online at this uh, Badwater Ultramarathon, uh, he was just incredible. Like, one, to even finish this race, you have to just be on another level of just fitness for regular people. 135 miles in the desert starts at negative 200 feet below sea level, and you get run to the top of a mountain over 130 miles later, right? Like, that's insane. To win it, like he's done, is just totally extraordinary. To win it two times in a row is insane, he was, Fitness Magazine called him the fittest human being on the planet. Among other things that he's done, just besides this, his fitness resume is he ran 50 marathons in 50 consecutive days, like back to back to back to back. He once ran 350 miles nonstop. Like, okay, to get a sense of how far that is, because I don't really know how far 350 miles is, it would be like if you walked out of your dorm and someone told you, okay, run a marathon. You ran it. You came back. They said, okay, great. Run another marathon. You ran that. They said, okay, now run to Charlotte and back. You ran that. And then they said, okay, great. Now have a cool down half marathon. That's 350 miles so far. And if, you know, if someone told me, all right, Anybody, like a human body can do this thing, I would have said, no way. Is that even possible? But Carno has done it, and it's documented, and it's insane. <laughs> if he hadn't done it, I don't think I would believe it. <laughs> All right. What this demonstrates is that these things can actually be done. In the previous chapter of Hebrews, chapter 11, it's kind of been called the roll call of faith. It's kind of going through Old Testament saints. And it's this long list of Old Testament people who've believed and not seen the fruit of their belief. And it's giving us this picture where it's as if, as if we are believers running this race in the stadium and we're running this marathon surrounded by people who've already finished and already done these incredible things. Like Hebrews 11 says there, some people lived in caves, some people suffered mocking and flogging. Some were sawn in two. It's insane, right? You can read that and think, okay, how is this supposed to help me? It feels like you're pointing me to Carno and saying, okay, now you go do your thing. I'm like, I can't do that. 
Is it like, you know, I'm supposed to be thinking about Moses somewhere up there looking down at me, and he's like, good job, keep going, only 65 more years to go. Like, I love God, you ought to love God. I went up on a mountain and got some commandments, you should really follow those things. Like, is that what the point of this is? Like, if it's an arena, and they're shouting, like, how do they get up there in those bleachers? I think this is where the good news really starts to come out. Because is this a stadium of merit? In most arenas, the stadiums are that. Maybe not for the fans, but at least for the people competing. And sometimes when we talk about the Old Testament, it can kind of sound like, you know, David faced his giants, David faced his Goliath, now go face yours. Or David was a man after God's own heart, you go be a man after God's own heart. And that's how people sometimes teach this stuff. But what are these people actually doing up in those stands? Do you know who some of the people named in Hebrews 11 are? Hebrews 11 says that one of those people, one of these saints who's in this cloud, was Rahab, and it says the prostitute. Like, a woman who sold her body to men because of her faith is up in heaven. David, who started so strong, the adulterer, the murderer, the bad father, is up there. He's up there. He ends really weak. Samson... A judge from the book of Judges, who's supposed to be really strong, this incredibly ambiguous character, killed his in-laws, was seduced by Delilah. Ultimately, he kills himself and his enemies by pulling a building down on himself. He's never named again in the Old Testament. He's named in Hebrews 11 as being one of the people up there. What would these people be shouting at us as they're encouraging us on? You know, like, focus, go harder, do what I did. No. What they would be shouting is, trust God. I know this is hard. Trust Him. Lean into what He said and done and don't stop. If you will trust Him, then you won't stop. That, y'all, that is faith. And that leads to the real issue because here's the thing to really get out of this. Yes, lose the impediments. Yes, lose the sin that entangles. Yes, run, but run to what? What's the object of our faith? Look at what verse 2 says. It says it all. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Think about those words. What does it mean that Jesus is the perfecter? You know, a lot of people have talked about this and gone back and forth on it. But the best that I can state is that how Jesus lived out and modeled the life of faith was he's the best example, surprise, of a life of faith and trust that anyone has ever lived. You know, we tend not to think of Jesus as like a believer, but it says in Hebrews 2 that he believed and trusted God. Does that mean that's all he did? Was Jesus just a model for us? No. And if we stop there, it's just super discouraging. I mean, that would be like Carno times 10, right? Like the, the point of the sermon then would be, he gave us all, will you give your all? Like, let's pray. Like, that's super discouraging. Like, no, none of us gave their all. None of us can give our all. Jesus is one of a kind. But he's the perfecter. He does this so well that he perfects it because he's also the founder. Not only what he did is what's required of God's people, perfect trust and obedience, but he perfected it and founded our faith because he got the punishment and the scorn that I deserve for my lack of faith and my inconsistent running of this ultra marathon. That when I run to him and put the weight of who I am and my identity onto him, that he is the object of my race. That there are days, y'all, when I just feel like I don't want to run. And there are days when it feels like I'm sleeping in. Or like I'm going to chase something else entirely other than Jesus. And yet through faith, you and I are given credit for all that he's done on our behalf. 
And God gives us the ability to believe that. Because your faith is not attained or achieved like some sort of reward or merit. It's not stirred up on our own production. It can be encouraged or warmed, but it's given and granted by God himself. So whether you're here and you're convinced of this stuff, or whether you're here and you're totally unconvinced, this is for you. Like if you're here and you're convinced and you're feeling exhausted at this point of the year, and you feel like, okay, look, God is making demands that no one can do. No one can be as generous with their time or intentionality in loving their neighbor as he's demanded. No one can do that. The stadium is looking down and saying, trust him. We know it's hard. Trust him. Keep running. Or what if you're saying, you know, I don't have trust. I don't have faith. Okay, he has not only modeled it, he can give it to you. God gives the very thing that he requires if you just ask him for it. God, give me faith. He gives it. He loves to answer that prayer. Okay, but how do we keep running? How do we look for it and just keep running after this thing? What if we live to be like 90 years old or 100 years old? Like, very possible, right? Like, you could be in a retirement community on the moon one day. Who knows? (laughs) The moon. We'll be there. (laughs) I came across, uh, as I was kind of looking at the ultramarathon thing today, too, um, you can tell what I did with a lot of my day. Uh, <laughs> came across a guy named David Goggins. Uh, David Goggins was a Navy SEAL. He saw combat in Afghanistan. He lost some friends over there. And when he got back from his time in service, he wanted to do something for the children of the soldiers of his friends um, to help raise money for them to go to college. You know, their parents were deceased. So he Googled hardest things in the world to do. And he decided that he would pick some of those things and get sponsors and raise money for the children of some of his friends to go to school. And so, surprise, one of the things that popped up was the Badwater Ultramarathon. And when he signed up for it, they asked him, you know, have you ever done an ultramarathon? And he's like, no. And they had, well, have you ever done a marathon? No. Uh, well, you might want to do an ultramarathon or even a marathon before you do the Badwater. And he said, okay. And so he does, he does a marathon and then an ultramarathon. He loses like 60 pounds. Um, it's just incredible. And uh, he does the bad water and completes it. And if you look on his homepage, it starts off saying, I'm nobody special. Yes, you are. Uh, you started a charity for the, de- for the children of your deceased friends. Uh, and then he goes into saying, like, let's be perfectly clear. I don't like to run. I don't like to swim. He was a Navy SEAL. You don't like to swim, really? <laughs> I don't like to bike. I do this to raise money for the children of soldiers killed in combat. Okay, he doesn't like to run. He doesn't like to bike. He doesn't like to swim. But he does all of those things when you're doing an ultramarathon. He does all those things to an extreme level. He does those things, why? Because he has some greater, higher thing ahead of him. Some greater goal that's beyond the pain of enduring this grueling race through the desert. And to run the race of faith well, we need the same thing. Because people like us, we don't drift towards like a great prayer life. And we don't drift towards just obeying God's word. And we certainly don't drift towards like holiness. But people like us, we drift towards things like compromising ourselves. And sometimes we call it tolerance, or sometimes we call it freedom. Sometimes we tell ourselves, well, I'm not a legalist, I'm free and God loves me and so I'll do what I want. But unless we're actually using that freedom to lay aside sin and run towards Jesus, we're usually deluding ourselves. 
But real faith and really running the life of the Christian faith is not simply running away from like dangerous sins that might hurt us or jeopardize our future so we can kind of keep a few pet sins that nobody knows about and we think are fine to ourselves. But real faith is running away from sin, even the sins that we love. And real faith is running away from all of our good works and all of our bad works, all the things that people praise me for. And all the things that I'm afraid that people will find out about me. Running from both of those things and running towards Jesus. Because you see, if Jesus is the author and perfecter and founder of our faith, then he's our model. And it says here that Jesus' joy was not the cross. Jesus did not enjoy becoming the man of sorrows. Jesus did not enjoy suffering. He did not enjoy death. He did not enjoy shame. He was not a masochist. We despised those things. But his joy and our joy must be doing the will of his Father by loving God and loving his people, even to the point of dying to himself. And so he runs the race of the cross, and he runs to the cross and through the cross and suffers in it and on it, so that the joy that lay on the other side would be his And so that he would give joy to us. That that is what motivated him. That that is what made him lay aside his privilege and his glory and his invulnerability. And so he was shamed and inglorious and killed. Because he knew how much the Father loved him. And he was willing to do whatever it took to give that love to us. Because you know what Jesus knew from experience from being the second person of the Trinity? He knew what Psalm 16 says. That in the presence of God is joy forever. And in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And y'all, that's where Jesus is seated. And the reason he endured is because he wanted that joy. And the fullness of that joy is for his people like us. And when you run, run to him. That Christianity is not about suffering. Christianity is not about, you know, being really dour and sad all the time. Christianity is not being able to do whatever I want to do because God just forgives all that stuff. Christianity is about the joy of knowing God. It's not about being this squeaky clean person and one day having squeaky clean kids. But it's about knowing God and being healed by Him and running towards Him and enduring whatever it takes to be the person that God made you to be. Which means to throw aside sin, throw aside whatever it it takes to get a little bit less friction in this life and a little bit more endurance for Him. Because he has loved you and given himself for you on the cross. You know, that's hard. That takes your whole life. But trust him and run towards him and you will find joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God of joy. That you give us joy in yourself. That you give us joy in running the race of faith. God, that life is not easy. That there is no, no door to escape it. There's no key that if we grab it, it will make uh, everything easy. But Lord, the truth and the grace that we have in your Son is that you take even suffering and you produce joy from it. Lord, that if you took a peasant man on a cross, dying for sinners, and you saved millions and millions and millions of people through that, and are redeeming people of all tribe and tongues and nations and races, Lord, then you can take our sufferings and our tears and you can make joy and peace and loveliness come out of that. Lord, help us to run towards you, 
redeem our tears, redeem our pain, redeem our sorrows, redeem the whole of who we are in the person and work of your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you.